Okay, good morning everyone. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we continue to look at your word in the Old Testament, in the lives of David and Saul and Jonathan, you will see how it speaks of your character, it speaks of man's response to you, and how that is still relevant to us today. And we pray that you may challenge us mightily in our hearts. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, who are the most, uh, or actually, who are the three most important people in your life? Okay, who are the three most important people in your life? Maybe a friend, some relatives, family members, an influential figure in your life? Who are the three most important people in your life? Just think about that for a second. Picture them in your head. Think about the places where you usually meet them or see them. Okay, so who are the three most important people in your life? And then ask yourself the question, why are they so important? Why are they so important to you? Okay, just think about that for a moment. Who are the three most important people in your life? And why are they so important to you? And we're going to come back to that later in the sermon. Now, over the last few weeks, uh, we've learned that Saul, King Saul, had failed God as king over his people Israel. He was unfaithful, he was disobedient, he was spiritually blind. And God had taken away the kingship from King Saul and given it to David. He had taken the Holy Spirit from King Saul and given it, given it to David. But Saul was unwilling to let go of the kingship. Actually, he went the opposite. He went to great lengths to kill David. And last week we saw that there were seven attempts that were made on David's life. And remember, Saul started out in a very sneaky way. Remember, he was like very sneaky and underhanded in trying to kill David. But over time, he became bolder and bolder and bolder. Until finally the glove came off and he sent soldiers to kill David in his own house. So, uh, last week we saw, if you look at this map, right, just to give you an idea of the geography. Okay, so, um, can you see the map up here? Is it up here yet? Okay, you see the map? So, uh, all these numbers actually mean something. Okay, so, uh, Gibeah is the capital of, or was the capital of King Saul. And, uh, and David left there and he went to Naioth in Ramah where he was with the prophet Samuel. And, and, and even with the prophet Samuel, the great prophet Samuel, Saul tried to kill David three times, remember? He sent three groups of soldiers and he himself tried to kill David. But each time, he was prevented because the Holy Spirit had come and had taken over their bodies and stopped them from actually killing, King, uh, killing uh, David. So this week, as we see, uh, David returns from Naoth and Ramah and goes back to Gibeah, number three here, right, number three. And at this point in time, he speaks to his good friend, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, to appeal to him and ask him why this is happening. So verse, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, then David fled from Naioth and Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. Now, at this point in time, it is... David, who is coming back to Jonathan to appeal to him, to ask him, why is your father trying to kill me? Why is this happening? 
But the surprising thing here is that Jonathan doesn't seem to realize that his father is trying to kill David. Now, I always remember uh, there was this uh, very uh, well-known lecturer called uh, David Jackman. He's a preacher as well. And he always says, when you look at the Bible passage, always look for surprises. When you read the Bible, surprises are very important. Now, what is the surprise here in this passage? The surprise is that Jonathan doesn't seem to be aware that his father is trying to kill his good friend David. But how can that be so, isn't it? Because last week, we saw that, that, that Jonathan had already mediated with his father once to stop his father from killing David. And then we saw that King Saul had sent three groups of soldiers to kill David in Ramah. He sent soldiers to his sister's house to kill David. Even King Saul himself had gone to Ramah to kill King David, uh, to kill David. So why is it, why is it Jonathan is not aware of all these things happening? Is this really believable? Is he just ignorant or is he being biased towards his father? And more importantly, remember in chapter 18, early on, remember Jonathan had made a covenant with David. And he made a contract with David that he'll always be his friend. Right? He'll always be there supporting him and helping him. So the question is, is Jonathan still going to be faithful to the covenant he made with David? Or is he being biased now and influenced by his father? So verse 3, the story continues on. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked for permission to hurry to Bethlehem in his hometown because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe, but if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. So here, we see that uh, David accepts Jonathan's explanation. Right? He, he, he accepts the explanation that maybe King Saul is really a sneaky guy, a really cunning sort of fellow, and he's hidden all these facts from his own son, Jonathan. So David hatches a, a, a cunning plan, right? a very sneaky plan himself, to, grow, to bring out the true colors of King Saul, to show to his own son, Jonathan, how his own father is trying to kill David. So what is this plan? Well, the New Moon Festival uh, is going to be the next day, and the New Moon Festival in ancient Israel was a feast that they had every month. Okay, it's a monthly feast. Okay, number 28 here, you can see. We're not going to go through it all, but every month they have a New Moon Festival, because obviously the, you know, the moon comes and goes every, around every month, right? Okay, so every month they have this festival, the beginning of the month. So David gives an excuse that he has to go to an annual sacrifice. An annual sacrifice is definitely more important than a monthly feast, isn't it? And more than that, if you look at verse 29, look at me in verse 29. 
uh, we're not told about these details, maybe Jonathan made them up. But look at what Jonathan says to his own father, in verse 29 of chapter 20. Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. So here David hatches this cunning plan where there are two very good reasons why he shouldn't be at the New Moon Festival. The first reason is because it's an annual sacrifice which his family has required him to go to. The second reason is because he has to obey his brother. So those two reasons are very, very good reasons why he shouldn't be there. It's a bit like Chinese New Year, right? So you know Chinese New Year, every Chinese New Year, you go to your in-law's house. But you don't spend the whole of Chinese New Year at your in-law's house, right? Or if you did, your own parents wouldn't be very happy, right? You spend some of your time as well in your own family's house. So in the same way, the excuse or the reason that David comes up with for not going to the New Moon Festival is a good excuse, it's a good reason. It's an acceptable reason and there's no reason why King Saul should be angry. And this is where the tension comes into the story, isn't it? Okay, we're going to look, look at today a bit about narrative and the tension of the story. The tension of the story starts building up here because as the plan is being made, there are two big question marks. The first question mark is, what is Jonathan going to do? Right, that's the first question mark. What is Jonathan going to do? Is Jonathan going to follow through the plan? Is Jonathan going to be faithful to the covenant that he's made with David? Or is he going to with his own flesh and blood. Right, is he going to actually bother with this plan? Or maybe he'll just go up to his father and say, you know, Dad, do you really want to kill David? And then maybe King Saul will say, no, lie. you know, why would I want to kill David? You know, he's such a good son-in-law. You know, and then Jonathan might say, okay, I, I believe you. So the first tension is, is Jonathan really going to follow through this plan and side with David or is he going to be loyal to his own flesh and blood, his father. The second tension is, what is King Saul going to do? Even though they lay this cunning trap for King Saul, will Saul actually fall for the trap? And will Saul actually show his true colors? So at this point in time, all these questions are unanswered. All the possibilities exist. If you come to me to uh, verse 24 to 31, and we'll see everything unfold, all the whole action unfold. So in verse 24, it says, So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, Something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? 
as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now, everything is out in the open here, right? After this incident. And uh, the whole plan of David was to actually show uh, if Saul would get angry with his excuse. And that plan worked brilliantly because you could say that Saul was not just mildly angry, he was totally exploding with anger, right? He was livid, he was uh, incandescent with anger. And he shows his true colors because he's so angry that he even uses R-rated language on his own son, isn't it? So if you use the ESV, he not only curses Jonathan and curses Jonathan's mother, but in the ESV he says, you know, he curses him by his mother's nakedness. Right, so that's how angry Saul is. And now we see the true colors of King Saul come up. Because before, we thought that maybe Saul was just jealous of David. Remember, he was jealous because David killed 10,000 and he only killed 1,000. But look at, look at what he says in verse 31. Because in verse 31, he understands the situation exactly as it is, isn't it? Verse 31 reveals what King Saul is thinking. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. He knows that David is the next king. It is absolutely clear here in verse 31. He knows exactly what David stands for and what threat it is to himself and his kingdom. And he is willing to stand against David even though he knows that God has said that he no longer is the king and the kingdom is no longer his. So remember last week we saw up here um, that God has said to him very clearly two times that the kingdom is no longer yours, that the kingdom will be taken away from you. Therefore, what King Saul is doing is putting himself against God and against the will of God and against God's anointed. And he is challenging his own son, Jonathan, to join him in rebelling against God, against God's will, and God's, against God's anointed. And the choice is very clear, isn't it? In verse 31 again, Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. So the challenge for Jonathan is still there. Do you side with your own father, your own flesh and blood, and gain your future, the favor of the king, your father, and your kingdom? Or do you side with David, God's anointed, and lose the kingdom, and possibly lose your life. Now actually, if you look at the whole chapter, everything hangs on verse 30 to 31, isn't it? It's like the center of all the action. So I'm going to show you something a bit cheap here, but I'm sure you all are very clever, so you can follow with me. So if you look at the next slide, okay, this is a diagram, okay? You, you may not understand what this diagram is, but hopefully when I explain it to you, you do. This diagram basically explains uh, storytelling or narrative. Okay, if you go and watch any movie, you keep this diagram in mind, you understand what's happening. So the beginning of the movie always has an exposition or the setting of the story. Okay, this is what the story is about. And then the story becomes more and more complex with escalating or rising action. But the center part, the part which holds everything together is the climax. And the climax is always about 
what is going to happen? What is the hero going to do? What is the person's choice going to be? Okay, so you, if he makes a good choice, it's a happy story. If he makes a bad choice, it's a terrible story. And this, at this point, if you look at the story in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31 is the climax. Because what is Jonathan going to do? Right, he's, the, he's the key center character of the story. What is Jonathan going to do? Is he going to side with God's anointed David? Or is he going to side with his own flesh and blood, his father, King Saul? Well, thankfully, this is a happy story with a happy ending, as we know it will be, because God is in control. In verse 32, look at what Jonathan says. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in a fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Now, why did Jonathan make the right choice? Why did Jonathan choose to side with David, God's anointed, God's side, instead of his own flesh and blood, his father, his own father, Saul. Is it because he was standing up for right versus wrong? Was it because he had a bad relationship with his father? You know, his father wanted to kill him last time for eating honey. Was it because he was just a very good friend? No, isn't it? I think that actually, as we look at this passage, Jonathan also understands who David is. See, look at earlier on, in verse 11 to 17, right? So, verse 11 to 17, Jonathan actually made it very clear that he understood the stakes of what was happening there. He understood who David's identity was. So, they went out into the field, and look what he says there in verse 13. If my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan ever so severely if I do not let you know or send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Now, if you look up here on this slide, I've sort of made it simpler for you. Basically, in that conversation which he had with uh, David, he sees three things, he affirms three things about who David is. Isn't it? The first thing is, he recognizes that David is king. He will be king. He says to David, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now, how has the Lord been with King Saul? He empowered him, the Holy Spirit, and he anointed him and made him king. In the same way, Jonathan recognizes that the Lord will be with David in the same way that he has been with King Saul. He will make David king. He was anointed, he has been empowered with the Holy Spirit. And that is why, right from the very beginning, 
Jonathan knew that David would be king. Remember we saw the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 18? Uh, slide again. This one? Yep. Remember after he made a covenant with David, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. Along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now why did he do that? It wasn't because, you know, uh, the, job, the robe that Jonathan was wearing was from uh, Uniqlo. It was very cheap, so he had lots of robes to give away, right? The robe that Jonathan was wearing was the princely robe. He wore the, the, the clothes of a, of, a, of a prince. And he symbolically gave it to David. He gave him his sword and his bow and his belt. Symbolically, he was recognizing that the kingship would pass from himself to David. Second thing that he recognized, next slide again, was that not only would David be king, but David would be a great and successful king. He says, look, the Lord will cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He will have no one who will be able to stand up to David. And lastly, he recognizes that the kingship of David is one which will be a long kingship. Because he says, Jonathan made a covenant not just with David himself, but with the house of David, with the line of David. With many generations after generations after generations of David's descendants. See here, Jonathan sided with David, not because David was a good friend, but because David was a king, God's anointed king. A great king who would have kingship in many descendants, line after line after line after line. Now, I think that this being the climax of this passage, the challenge for us is, imagine if you were in Jonathan's shoes. Would you side with the God's anointed? Or would you side with your own flesh and blood? Now, we might sort of say, well, you know, we're not Jonathan and we are not uh, we're not friends with David. But the choice is exactly the same for us, isn't it? Because today, we don't have David as our king, but we have the son of David as our king, which is Jesus Christ. Because the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus was David. And Jesus was the prophesied eternal king that would come from the line of David. And he would be ruler and king forever. And that was the point that actually when you read the Gospels, and that's why it's so important to understand the Old Testament when you read the New Testament. Because as you read the Old Testament, it makes you understand what the New Testament is trying to tell us in, in greater depth and fullness. So if you look in uh, Matthew chapter 1, right, it's up here. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, the, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew makes it his, his, his first thing he tells the reader is, that Jesus Christ was the son of David. Because God had said that someone from the line of David will rule forever as king. Again, the crowds, when they saw David, uh, sorry, when they saw Jesus, okay, walking along, they used to call Jesus what? The son of David. Okay? The blind people always called Jesus the son of David. And again, next slide, John chapter 18. Again, Jesus himself says that he is the king. He is the king from another place. He says, so when Pilate asked him, 
Are you the king? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is of another place. You are king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying, I am king. I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So the challenge for us is the challenge that says Jonathan. What did Jonathan give up to be on the side of God's anointed king, King David? He gave up his future. He gave up his kingdom. He even gave up possibly even his life and his family relations. Jesus challenges us to give up those very same things if we want to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says very clearly, uh, next, sli- next slide, right, look at what Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for, the man, for a man to gain the whole world and let yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The situation of David and Jonathan is the same as the situation of Jesus and ourselves. The challenge is, are we willing to give up our very lives, the kingdoms, the little kingdoms that we have in this world, the, the, the faith that we have in this world to follow God's anointed? See, I'm sure Jonathan was human like us. He felt fear. I'm sure Jonathan felt fear. Fear for himself. Fear for his father's approval. Fear for his kingdom. And Jesus is saying the same thing. We might fear about losing our life. We might fear losing our dreams, our hopes, our plans. But Jesus says that it's always the right decision to be on the side of God's anointed. To choose Jesus, God's anointed, above all things. Now I want you to come back with me again to um, chapter 20, verse 14. It's exactly the same thing that Jonathan asked of David, isn't it? He says, look, I will be with you, I will follow you, I will be loyal to you, but what do I want from you? But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live. What does he want in return from following the Lord's anointed? He wants the kindness. He wants love from David for all the generations. In the same way Jesus promises us, if we follow him, right, when we come, when he comes in glory, he will show us his kindness and glory and the glory of the Father and the angels. Now, I always remember how, when I was younger, when I first became a Christian, I went to a Bible study and someone was very, very imaginative and they said, okay, they, they gave us all a heart, uh, uh, like a, a paper heart, okay? So, you, they cut it out and they put a heart and you're meant to fold the heart into four pieces, okay? And on each quarter of the heart, you're meant to write down the most important thing for you or your dreams, the most important thing for you in this life. And then you're meant to tear the heart up into four parts. Okay? 
And uh, the Bible studies leader was very clever, and they kept asking us to give up each part of that heart to God. So obviously you give off the least important part of the heart first, right? And then the third most important, and then the second most important, and then finally you left with that one last piece of your heart. You know, whatever it was, you know, your dream or your ambition or whatever, and you were asked to give it up to God. And that's the same thing, isn't it, that we're asked to do today. And that's what Jonathan did. He gave up everything for David. He gave it all up because he recognized that David was God's anointed. And the same way, that's what Jesus is asking of us, to give up everything for him. He even says in Luke chapter 14, right, the challenge that Jesus gives, he says, look, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know as we studied this passage before, that Jesus doesn't literally mean that you must hate your parents or hate your children or hate your brothers and sisters, but he's saying that you must love him so much. You must love Jesus so much. You must be loyal to Jesus so much that in comparison it must seem like you hate everything else. That is the requirement that I think 1 Samuel chapter 20 forces us to recognize. That if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to follow the Lord's anointed, then these are the sacrifices that we must give up. So I asked you in the introduction, right? Who are the three most important people in your life? And who are the three most important people in your life? Even though these are the most important people in your life, your devotion, your loyalty, your love for Jesus must be far greater than these other three people. I remember many years ago there was a baptism class and there was a young man who came to the baptism class. He finished the baptism class. He was supposed to be baptized. But unfortunately, he had a long conversation with his father and uh, this is a, he wasn't a child, he was a man, right, a young man. And his father was very angry and insisted that he should not and would not get baptized. And if he did get baptized, uh, there would be a cost to it, a great cost. Okay, because uh, this man, uh, his father, had a family company and it would affect how this young man would actually inherit the company or not. So this young man decided not to get baptized and it was the first of many decisions that he made which eventually led him to where he is today. A person who is far away from God. A person who doesn't go to church and doesn't believe in God anymore. And that step, I always look back at this young man's life who I, I, I got to know quite well and that step of choosing not to get baptized was the first step of many steps which led him to where he was today. Because he would not put the love of Jesus above that of any other relationship. So in conclusion, just as David was God's anointed, yet he was pointing forward to Jesus, the ultimate anointed king of God. And the challenge for us is the challenge that faced Jonathan. Will we always put God's anointed first in our life? 
I remember reading a book which uh, I put down as one of my most favorite Christian books many years ago. This book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Okay, it's not about divorce, it's got nothing to do with divorce at all, but it's called The Great Divorce. And in the book, all these people stay in these mud houses. They're these terrible houses. And the worst thing about these mud houses is that these mud houses become more and more ghost-like over time, so that, you know, the walls sort of start disappearing and they become less and less material. So not only are they living in these terrible houses, but the houses themselves are disappearing. And, uh, okay, in this fictional story by C.S. Lewis, this train comes every day to fetch people to bring them to heaven, where they have these fantastic uh, houses in glory with God. And the whole book, The Great Divorce, is about why all these people choose to live in these disappearing mud houses instead of getting in the train and going up to heaven. And I was thinking, that's exactly like today's passage, isn't it? What is holding you back from following Jesus of all your heart? Because whatever it is, it is nothing, nothing at all compared to the glory that God has promised us if we follow His anointed King, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we will look at this story, this real incident between Jonathan, David and Saul, and see how truly it points us to your Son, Jesus, the great and eternal King. Help us to see that the decisions that Jonathan made are exactly the same ones that we face. The fear of losing family, the fear of losing our own dreams, our kingdoms, our futures in this world. But yet, the greatness and the glory which awaits us in Jesus Christ forces us to see that all these things, all these temporal things, are not worth the glory which awaits us. We pray for each and every one of us here that we would always make the right decision to side with your anointed King, Jesus Christ, to love Him, to be devoted to Him, to be loyal to Him far, far above anything of this world and this life. For we know that this world and this life can offer us nothing compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.